Good morning, Evie Free. How are you guys? Great. We got some high schoolers to my left. Is that right? Maybe not. Maybe not. I thought they came to the 10 a.m. service. Maybe. Anyway. Uh, I, I, I was saying that because I went to Lake Havasu this weekend with the seniors. Uh, I, I'm tempted to call it Havasu. Because from Oklahoma, I don't know how to say the word. Um, but, I, but I think the, sun, the sunscreen industry loves me. I probably put on three gallons of sunscreen uh, this weekend alone. And so if you're fair-skinned, you're in the camp with me. And you know what it's like. It's like every 30 minutes. Okay, I was driving home from the lake. It's like a five-hour drive. And it's one of those drives where the sun is just beaming in from the left side. So I'm like, I'm like driving, putting sunscreen on my left arm. Pastor, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm fair-skinned. Leave me alone. Uh, well, good morning. My name's Austin. I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here at EV Free. Uh, if this is your first time to EV Free, we just want to welcome you. Uh, we're just a people that have gathered together to say yes to Jesus, to worship him, uh, to study from his word, to connect with each other, because on some level, we've stumbled upon the life of discipleship, and, and we've found that it's, it's the best way to live, although it can be trying at times. There is such great life that comes from following Jesus. And so we follow Jesus together. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we are in uh, the book of Luke. So if you could turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke, yes. Uh, I was talking with a family first service and they said, I have about 20 pages in my Bible that are more discolored than the rest. And they're not talking about the underlines. They're just talking about the outside. They're frayed and worn because we've been in Luke for a while. But it's so good. This is Jesus. He's speaking in Luke chapter 11. Uh, Luke is really just, it's a gospel account, which means that it's, it's telling the story of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. And in the New Testament, you really find two kinds of books. You find books that are written to the Jewish community, people who are ethnically Israel. Uh, and then you find books that are written to people that are outside uh, of Israel, but they've come to faith. Uh, the, the text calls them Gentiles. And, and this book of Luke, scholars believe, is written to that Gentile community. So on some level, they're, they're learning about Jesus and they're learning about the roots of Judaism all at the same time. And so Luke is really trying to connect a lot of the dots. What, what does the Old Testament say and what is Jesus saying and, and how do the two connect? And in this passage in Luke chapter 11, we find that to be so vivid. Uh, Jesus is going to refer to several Old Testament stories. And so we're going to go back, we're going to look at those stories and say, okay, so how is Jesus using these stories to, tr- to draw a line through them to really connect them? So this is Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. It says, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be assigned to this generation. And in verse 31 uses some Old Testament stories to make the same kind of point. It says, The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom And now something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 32. The men of Nineveh in the same way will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we ask you in these moments as we open your word that your spirit would be heavy in this place to illuminate your scriptures to us, that somehow in reading your word, we'd be formed into better disciples, people who can, with a deeper sense of resolve and commitment, say yes to you and yes to the life of discipleship. It's in your name that we pray, amen. So Jesus is speaking to this crowd that's gathering around him, that the crowd is growing larger, and he really uses three Old Testament stories to try and make a singular point. So we're going to go back and look at those stories one by one, and then we're going to come back to the words of Jesus and say, okay, so what is Jesus saying? Because when we look at the text, we may not really know the story of the Queen of the South. We don't really know what it's like to ask for a sign, and we also don't know what the sign of Jonah is. Uh, But the listeners of Jesus that are crowded around him probably do. So we want to know what they know. So let's turn to Psalm chapter 95. Um, These are are words uh, put to song. Israel would sing these to help remember their story. So this is Psalm 95. We're beginning in verse 7, about halfway through. And it says this. It says, Today... Today, if you would only hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors, they tested me. You see, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they know not my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And so if you were Jewish and and you were living in Israel at the time, uh, you're familiar with the story. The story goes that um, Israel at one point, they were slaves in Egypt, but uh, through signs and wonders, God actually brings them out of Egypt and begins to lead them to the promised land. Now, as Israel is on the way to the promised land, the promised land becomes a symbol for the rest of God. It's the place where Israel is finally going to find security. They're going to find safety. They're going to find abundance. They're going to find peace. They're going to find wholeness. This is the story, but as they're on their way, Psalms recounts the story that they continue to test the Lord. They continue to ask for signs. In fact, uh, halfway through verse 9, it says, They tried me. They tried me. They tested me. Though they had already seen what I did. This is a people that's not unfamiliar with the miracles of the Lord. In fact, when the Lord is bringing them out of Egypt, there are these miraculous plagues that happen. And then after these these ten plagues, when they're finally at the Red Sea on their way to freedom, the sea parts And Israel walks through on dry land. So this was a people wandering through the desert that had seen these these amazing, miraculous signs and wonders. Yet, in the desert, they refused to really listen. Instead, they, they allow their hearts to grow hard and they continue to test and to try the Lord. And as a result, the Lord says, because of this obstinance, because you harden your hearts, because you allow yourself to go astray, because you're looking for a bigger and a better and a more spectacular sign, you'll, you'll never enter my rest. You'll, you'll never enter the place of wholeness and peace and safety and security. 
So Jesus kind of uses this story a little bit, and we'll get back to that. But then he uses two stories that are actually quite the opposite. Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Jonah. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, uh, we're going to have it on the screen. Uh, if you've been around faith for a while or at any time you were growing up in church, you know, uh, we, we feel like the crux of the story is Jonah ends up in the belly of this whale for three days and three nights. It's oftentimes the only thing we really remember about the story. Uh, but there's so much more to it. And so we begin in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the Lord said, go, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you were in Jonah's time, uh, Nineveh would have been like the, the New York City of its day. It would have been uh, famous, popular, affluent, tons and tons and tons of people. And Jonah is commanded to go to the city. Now, what's interesting about Jonah is he's the only prophet that's commanded in the text to go to a people group outside of Israel, yet you would imagine Jonah is faced with this adventurous, wild, exciting call to go into a land he's never been before. I would imagine, I would hope that I would say, yes, I'd love to go. i love to travel. Let's do this thing. But Jonah's response isn't that. This is verse 3. It simply says that after Jonah heard this, Jonah ran away from the Lord. And as he's running, he makes it to a port city. He hops on a ship, and the ship begins to, to go across to its destination. But when we read the text, we find that um, as Jonah's on the ship, this, this ship begins to be pounded by waves and water, and this, there's this outrageous storm. The storm is so bad, the ship begins to sink, and so all the, the sailors and crew, they begin to grab all the cargo and throw it overboard. They're just trying to keep the thing afloat. And as they throw over everything that's on the deck of the ship, they move down to the hull of the ship to grab more cargo to take up, and they walk into a room, and they find Jonah in the hull. Now, Jonah isn't nervous. He isn't scared. He isn't praying. Jonah is sleeping. He's sleeping through the storm, and the sailors wake him up and say, what are you doing? Don't you see that we are about to die? You should start to pray, and then Jonah confesses to them, Listen, I, I don't worship the gods that you worship. I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh. And you should also know this. This is all my fault. I'm running from the Lord. And uh, the ship is drowning because I'm on it. So if you want what's best for you, take me and throw me overboard. Um, the people look at Jonah and say, absolutely not. You're crazy. We're going to keep you on board. We're going to make it out of this. So they go back to their, their rows and they, they try and row through the storm. They keep throwing things overboard. The ship is getting lower and lower into the sea. And finally, the crew has a change of heart. They say, Jonah, we're going to take you up on your offer. See you later. So they throw Jonah over the side of the boat. And this is the part of the story we all remember. Jonah is swallowed by a whale. He's in the belly for three days and three nights. After this, the sea monster spits Jonah back up. And we find ourselves in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Says Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Uh, and Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming the message the Lord had given to him. And watch this message. Isn't it awesome? Forty more days 
and Nineveh will be overthrown, right? There's not a lot of hope in that message and not a lot of substance to it. That's just the message that he proclaims. And you can imagine that if you're the city of Nineveh, you're famous, you're strong. There are over 120,000 people in your city. You're affluent. And so you see this Jewish man who's never been to Nineveh kind of walk into the city one day's journey, stands on a street corner and starts saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I would imagine the response would be, yeah, right. You're crazy. We're going to be fine. We have a great king. We have lots of money. We have lots of power and status. You're a little bit out of your mind. So I I may not even give you the dignity of responding to you. I'm just going to walk past you and ignore you. I I think that would, if, if I had an inclination, that would be the response of Nineveh. But Nineveh actually responds quite differently. This is chapter 3, verse 5. It says, upon hearing this, Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites came to faith in God and it says a fast was proclaimed in all of them. Every single person in the city from the greatest to the least, from the rich to the poor, from the powerful to the weak, they put on sackcloth together. And it says that the message begins to spread all throughout the city. And finally, it says in verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh. Now, the the king of Nineveh can kind of put a stop to this sackcloth business, right? He can say, no, we're going to be fine. I'm going to protect the city. We're going to be good. We have wealth. We have power. We have status. We're famous. We're going to be all right. But this message of 40 days and you'll be overthrown, reaches the king and the whole city is repenting and putting on sackcloth. And this is what the king does halfway through verse 6. It says, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. What an image for a king. Verse 10 continues, and and we remember Jonah's message had no sign of hope, no sign of saving. It's just 40 days and you're going down. That's it. But in verse 10 it says, when God saw what they did, when he saw how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. You see, in Nineveh's repentance, In Nineveh's turning to the Lord, they are opened up to the wild generosity of God, that God would come and save them. But but here's one of the contrasting points is that in Psalm 95, Israel is in the desert. Israel has seen signs, they have seen wonders, they have seen miracles, and still they do not repent. They keep asking for a greater sign. A greater miracle, something more spectacular. And as a result, God says, you'll never enter my rest with that attitude. And then you hear you have Nineveh. They've been given no sign. They've seen no miracle. The the skies have not parted. A voice from heaven has not come in. They've simply been given the word of the Lord. But their response, unlike Israel in Psalm 95, is they believe. They, they trusted. They, they came to faith. The, the response is wildly different. A similar story is in Second Chronicles chapter 9. 
This is uh, the queen of the south that Jesus refers to. Uh, in your Bible, it probably talks about the queen of Sheba. Um, and we're going to read the story because it's pretty unfamiliar to us. But when we read it, a lot of wisdom and insight will be shed on us about what's happening in Luke chapter 11. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, Solomon's a very famous person at this point, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions, arriving with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones. She came to Solomon and talked with him. She talked with him about all that she had on her mind. When later rabbis reflect on this story, that they speculate as to the kinds of questions the Queen of Sheba probably asked Solomon. And the questions range from uh, marriage to relationships to reproduction to finances to the economy to politics. It, it's the whole, the whole extreme of human thought. And she brings all of these things that she doesn't understand to Solomon. And verse 2 talks about Solomon. It says, Solomon answered all of her questions. Not a single one was left unanswered. It continues, nothing. Nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw the wisdom of Solomon, as well as the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, the cupbearers in their robes, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed at what she saw. And she says to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom, it's all true. But I didn't believe it. I did not believe what they said until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half of the greatness of your wisdom was told to me. Watch this. You have far exceeded the report that I heard about you. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on his throne as king to rule for the Lord your God. Because of the love your God for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever, he has made you king over them to maintain justice and to maintain righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. There had never been such spices as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So there, there's something about this, this generosity that the queen of Sheba begins to give to Solomon. But then watch this in verse 12. It says, And the king of Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, and all that she asked for. In fact, he gave her more than even she had brought to him. See, when, when the queen of Sheba comes before Solomon, she's not given a sign. She's not given a miracle. She's not given a wonder. She simply hears the words of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon, and she, she turns. And her life at that point is opened up to the deep generosity that comes from God's people. 
And so Jesus uses these three stories, Psalm 95, the book of Jonah, and 2 Chronicles chapter 9 to begin to establish these dichotomies. Israel, though they had seen what the Lord had done, they had seen his miracles, they had seen their signs, they had seen his wonders, yet they allowed their hearts to become hardened because they wouldn't listen to the Lord. But here you have the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba who have seen no sign. They've seen no wonder. They've seen no miracle. Yet just upon hearing the wisdom of the Lord, just based on their hearing of the message of the Lord, they repent. They come to faith. And so Jesus uses these three stories in Luke chapter 11. Are you guys with me? Yes. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. As the crowds increased, one translation actually says, as the crowds grew thick. So people are, they're they're coming to Jesus and they're pressing in around him. As his popularity grows and there's more listeners, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. I don't think he read how to win friends and influence people. Uh, when he's speaking to the crowds, right? Like, this isn't what you say when your popularity is growing, but I, I think Jesus' um, insight, when he uses the word wicked, when he uses the word evil, he actually has something different in mind. When I think of wicked, and I think of evil, I think of two things. One of the things that I think of is horror movies from Hollywood, right? The Ring, The Exorcist, What Lies, like all these, all these movies that I don't watch, I just see the previous, say, I'm good. I'm good. That's like, I watched the preview in like broad daylight. I'm like, I'm scared enough. I don't need to see anymore. I, I think some of those things are like wicked and evil, right? But it's kind of a, a dramatic version of what it can look like. Hollywood kind of has a fascination with it. On the other side, when I think of evil, I think of some things that are systemically evil. I think of these people that get involved in these Ponzi schemes where people trust somebody with their their retirement and their resources and their savings and they're told that this company is, you know, investing wisely for them and then they wake up one day 30 years later and they find that it was all a a big scheme and there's no money and they they lost everything and they're left penniless and broke. To me, that's an evil thing. Or in the things that ISIS does in the Middle East, the way that they, they kill Christians and non-Christians, they kill Americans and non-Americans, they, they kill the young and they kill the old. I look at that and I think, man, that's evil. That's wicked. And when Jesus uses the word evil and wicked, I, I think it's kind of amusing uh, because w- the reason he calls them wicked is kind of nothing really even close to that. He said, this is a wicked generation because it asks for a sign. Wow, that's harsh, right? Uh, but, but the idea here is that Jesus is relating this generation that surrounds him to the generation from Psalm 95. You have seen so much and still you're testing me. Jesus is walking around northern Galilee. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But the people still will not get off the sidelines and join the Jesus movement. They're still stuck on the bench waiting for a bigger, better, more miraculous sign. And so when Jesus says wicked, he's probably more using the word worthless. You guys are worthless. 
I've shown you so much. You've heard so much and you still refuse to cross the threshold of faith. So no sign will be given to you. I'm not going to give you anything bigger or anything better except for the sign of Jonah. Verse 30, for as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then verse 31 is where we begin to use those stories from the Old Testament. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation, the generation surrounding Jesus, and that queen is going to condemn the people. For she came from the ends of the earth, not to see a sign, Not to see a wonder, not to see a miracle, but simply to listen. To listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now, standing before you, there's something greater than Solomon's wisdom. In the same way, the men of Nineveh, they will stand up at the judgment with the generation surrounding Jesus. And they'll condemn it. For they repented. They repented not when they saw a sign. Not when they saw a miracle, not when they saw a wonder. They repented simply when they heard the preaching of Jonah. Yet there's a greater message standing before you now than the message of Jonah. What Jesus is saying to the crowd is there's something about simply listening. Listening to the wisdom and listening to the message of God that somehow brings us closer to his throne room something about listening that actually shapes us as disciples in a way that seeing signs and wonders will not. You see, Jesus recognizes that seeing more signs and wonders does not bring people to faith. In a sense, sometimes it can almost even harden their hearts, but there's something about listening that softens the heart. And so if if listening softens the heart, then we have to believe something about God, and that, that thing about God is that God speaks. There's, there's something about God in which he, he spoke in the past and then he spoke in the early church and that he's actually speaking today. I, I don't know a book that actually covers this better than the book of Hebrews. So we turn to Hebrews chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 7. And the writer is speaking to a community of people about what it's like. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, he actually requotes the passage from Psalm 95. So if you were a a reader of Psalm 95, you were reading a story about ancient Israel traveling through the desert and the the generation the psalmist would have been writing to would have been hundreds of years later and hundreds of years after the journey in the desert, the psalmist says, but today, if you hear his voice. And that would have been a thousand or so years before the coming of Jesus. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, there's a new writer in the book of Hebrews who uses that same passage from Psalm 95 to speak to his current community about 70 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And says, so, as the Holy Spirit says today, today if you hear his voice, the the scriptures actually attest to this idea that God is the kind of God that speaks. And when he speaks, it actually changes the environment. It it changes the atmosphere. So the the author of Hebrews begins to use these different images for it. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 say this. In the past, 
In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets, and he spoke it many times, and he spoke in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And then watch this in verse 3. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. In fact, the sun is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. There's something about the spoken word today that sustains things and sustains our lives. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, he says this. He says, for the word of God is alive. The word of God is active. It's not dead. It's not static. It's not stale. In fact, even today, the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. Even today, the word of God penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. For the writer of Hebrews, there was this idea that God is a God who speaks. And if God is a God who speaks, then the the other side of the idea is that we can be disciples that listen. We can actually be disciples that hear God. And so returning to that passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, it says, So, as the Holy Spirit says today, Not yesterday, but today, if you hear his voice because God is speaking, don't harden your hearts. Don't don't harden them as you did in the rebellion in the wilderness during the times of testing. Because there is where your ancestors tested me. That's where your ancestors, they tried me. Though for 40 years, they actually saw what I did. And that's why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See, oftentimes I think in a life of discipleship when we imagine wandering and going astray, we think of it as maybe some light or arbitrary thing that we can do or that can happen. But the idea of wandering and going astray is actually the kind of thing that leads us into deep danger and injury and sometimes casualty. Uh, I had a friend really into hiking and, and they were going on a hike with a small group of people and it was, it was up high in the mountains. They were expecting it to be a one-day hike. In fact, it needed to be a one-day hike because they didn't bring adequate clothing for night uh, or shelter for the evening. And as they were hiking, they, they wanted to get adventurous and kind of go off the beaten trail, right? Like, it's fun. But uh, what ended up happening is they ended up wandering just a little bit too far. And they ended up going astray for just a little bit too long. And before they knew it, they noticed the sun was starting to go down and they, they realized that they had wandered so far and for so long they couldn't find their way back to the trail. And my friend said at this point, they started to panic. 
they started to get very scared because just a few weeks earlier, some hikers had been in the same area and they, they'd done the same thing. They were hiking and they went off the trail for too long and for too far and eventually they, they, they couldn't find their way back and the sun set on them. But they didn't have the adequate clothing for the winter weather and they didn't have the right tents to protect them and this, these people ended up passing away. And so my friend begins to, we, what's going to happen if we can't find our way back? We're not ready what's going to happen at night and they start trying to find their way back and they run into another group of people who are just as panicked and just as scared because they can't find their way back and eventually they find the path they make it back to their cars as the sun is disappearing behind the horizon and I get a call later that evening it just said wow I was really scared this, this wandering this going astray actually almost caused me deep injury it almost caused me deep casualty. And I think the same thing is true for the life of discipleship. If we wander for too long, if we go astray too far, we actually open up our lives not to the generosity of God, but to deep injury in our lives, to deep injury in our marriage because we're not listening to the voice of God and inviting him into it. If we do that for too long and go too far, distrust, a loss of intimacy, a loss of faithfulness can creep into the marriage. If you're a single person and you stray for too long and for too far, you open yourself up to injury, becoming too selfish, too isolated, too lonely. If you're, if you're in the workplace and, and you go astray for too long and for too far, you end up in a space where you open yourself up to not having a job. You become too lazy, too dishonest, too rebellious. You see, there's something about going astray that can cause our lives deep injury. And casualties can actually be sustained. But the opposite is also true. That listening to the voice of God and keeping our hearts from being hard actually leads us to the place of rest, to a place of God's peace, a place of God's wholeness, a place of God's security, his safety, his abundance. That the opposite is true, and that's at the heart of it, the desire of God, is that as disciples, as, as long as the road may be, And as gentle as he may be, and sometimes as painful as it may be, God wants to lead us to a place of rest. The Psalms talk about it in a sense that he wants to lead us to greener pastures, to clearer, purer waters. And so there's something about gathering here together corporately. That's really kind of what we're doing. Is, is we're leaning into worship because we want to listen to the voice of God. And, and we're leaning into studying his word because we want to listen to the voice of God. And, and we don't want to listen in such a way that we just learn new information. But we want to listen in such a way that our marriages actually get formed by listening to the word. That being a single person in that season, your life actually gets formed by listening to the word. That being in the workplace, the way that you work for an employer or the way that you are an employee actually gets formed because you begin to listen to the word of God. 
And, and, and as disciples, we begin to uh, be led by our shepherd to a place of rest, to a place of peace, to a place of healing, a place of wholeness. And for some of us in here, we are uh, suddenly aware that we have been wandering for too long. And we have wandered too far in the sense that we know that we are opened up to our marriages being deeply hurt, deeply wounded, and potentially suffering a casualty. We realize that as a single person, we've become too isolated, too lonely, too selfish, and, 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 and we need to start listening again. As employees and employers, we need to come back to that space of listening so that we work as if unto the Lord and not unto man. And so we're going to worship just for about 10 minutes here. And we're going to have prayer after the service on my left and your right. And if you're in a place where you think to yourself, I've wandered too far and I've been wandering for too long and I want the shepherd to take me back to greener pastures. I want the shepherd to lead me to a place of peace. This is our time. This is our time to open up our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, would you take me to a place of rest? Would you take me to a place of peace? Would you take me to a place where my marriage begins to be restored and healed? Would you take me to a place where I'm content and happy in my singleness? Would you take me to a place where I'm content in my vocation and the way that I work? God wants to get in the middle of this stuff and he wants to lead us to those places. So as we worship, let's listen. Let's listen to the word of the Lord that our hearts may become sensitive and soft to his leading and to his guiding. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you We thank you that you're a good shepherd. You're a good shepherd that speaks and that as disciples, we can actually know your voice. We can hear your voice and allow it to lead us and to guide us. And so as we worship, Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you begin to lead us into places of rest, into places of safety, into places of peace? Would you lead our marriages into places of wholeness, our singleness into places of contentment, our workplaces into places of mission? Lord, in this space, would you guide us? It's in your name that we pray.